Coming to you from New York City. This week and every week, it's the Ben Kissel Show. All right, everyone, welcome to the show. I'm Ben Kissel. As always, uh, Mike Coscarelli is producing. Thanks, Mike. How you doing? Today's guest, he's TV's Andy Levy. Thanks so much for being here, Andy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. You recognize Andy Levy's beautiful voice from oh, Fox News' Red Eye. He started in 2007, I believe, right? That sounds right, yeah. Uh, with uh, Red Eye with Greg Gutfeld, and now he's on Red Eye with Tom Shalhoub. He's all over the Fox News channel, and uh, it's a thrill and an honor to have you here in your beautiful baby blue eyes are making me feel as if I'm a pretty lady. <laughs> They're great eyes. I will not look at either one of you for the rest of this hour, I think. Perfect. That's wonderful. That's exactly the way that we like it. So, uh, let's see. I did a little thing called Google, and oh, I no. found your Wikipedia. You went to Columbia. I did. And you got your degree in political science. Yes, I did. And I got my degree in political science, too. Really? And now we're both on Fox News. <laughs> you much, much more than I. Where did you get your degree from? The University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. I'm a Panther. Really? Yes. The Panthers, UWM, and uh, it was a very exciting time. I loved I loved college. I had a lot of keg parties, and um, a whole series of women rejected me. I mean, it could <laughs> not have been more fun. I loved it. I started out as a theater major. Then I transferred to sociology, and then uh, sociology, I found it to be a little bit uh, bullshit. A little bit, you know, yeah. It's all, it's all nonsense, and ironically racist, I found it to be, uh, in the in the left uh, sense. So then I transferred to political science, got my degree there, moved out here to New York City. With a degree in political science, did you always want to get involved in the arts? No. I honestly, I, 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 I'm trying to remember why the hell I did political science. I think it's because I liked politics, and I think it was just that simple. And I, I think when I first went to college, I, the thought was, oh, I'll probably go to law school and, and right. do that thing. And I think like Probably less than a year into college, I realized I'm probably never, ever going to law school. But what a great lawyer you would have been. You well, would have you. been, you know, people said Ted Bundy, what a charming lawyer he was. <laughs> handsome man, <laughs> handsome devil. If you were a, a defense attorney, uh, you would have gotten, you I, wouldn't even have to do the Johnny Cochran rhyme thing. Did you just compliment me by comparing me to Ted Bundy? He's an attractive guy. I, I think that's what just happened here. He's an attractive guy. You wouldn't even have to rhyme like Johnny Cochran did to get O.J. Simpson. I off. could though. You would go to yeah, yeah. What, let's say I not get, freestyle. I'd have not to. Free- I'd have to write it. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. But you would just look at the jury, and they would just have uh, to sympathize. Right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Just one tear. One tear is uh. if you've littered on the highway and a Native American saw it, and he was sad. One tear. You must acquit my client. <laughs> And the jury would side with you every time. Well, I guess it's never too late to go to law school. That's what I was told for a large part of my life. You don't want to go to law school. No, I really don't. What a nightmare that would be. Yeah, I'm also a horrible student. It took me nine years to graduate college. Oh, that's fine. That's normal. Yeah. 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 It took me six years. Why did it take you so long? Uh, For me personally, it was just I would start every college semester with 18 credits. Mm -hmm. And by the the end of it, it was eight credits, nine credits, seven credits. I was a bit of a drunk. Yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. Um, I also, in my defense, three of those years I was I went into the army, but but even so, even that aside, it took me six, yeah. it took me six years to graduate. I'm I'm just as you know, uh, as Nigel or whoever said in Spinal Tap, I I'm not university material. Right, right, right. I'm just not much. I I love to read. I love to learn stuff, but I was never good at studying the stuff I was supposed to be learning for classes. Right. And that reflected in my grades, oddly enough. Well, why is that? Because I'm the same as you are uh, when it comes to structured education. And certainly, you know, the problems that we have right now with Common Core, standardized testing, we're creating a generation of drone people, and it's very sad. 
Um, what what do you think is it? What what is it with the education process in general that makes it so? Um, not exciting. How do they take the world is so exciting and information is so exciting and learning is so wonderful. What is it about the education process that just slowly snuffs out the imagination? I don't know. <laughs> it's not it's, I, the one thing I do have to say in, in defense of Columbia or whatever Columbia has a thing called the core curriculum mm-hmm. where you have to take a year of basically a philosophy course, you have to take a year of a literature course, you have to take a semester of music and a, a semester of art. And that's fan- that's like that that's fantastic, and I absolutely did not appreciate it at the time. Right. And but you know the idea that you 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 have to read uh, you know in the philosophy class Aristotle, Plato, mm-hmm. Locke, Mill, Marx. Uh, but you 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 have to read it. It it teaches you. It forces you to think. Right. Which is great. And the, the literature class. Look, reading literature can be unbelievably boring and mm. we all pretend I guess it's not and we talk about the classics or whatever but it's good to read that stuff yeah absolutely Mills Locke and of course uh, Richard Marks that's what yes, you're referring oh, to Richard yeah, yeah. I yeah. love Richard Marks yeah. and I love his yeah. political philosophies <laughs> but uh but no I, I I don't know if it's I don't know if it's education's fault or if it was I like I don't Columbia didn't fail me right. I failed not literally failed but I failed Columbia. So you were I, I just I was just a horrible student. I didn't yeah. want to read a boring textbook. Right. When I could be reading something that I thought was interesting. So because you didn't want to read a boring textbook, you're there I would assume sophomore year or so you chose to go into the military? No, no, well I did that after I didn't graduate on time. Oh, okay. So after 4 years maybe or maybe maybe five. <laughs> My memory is hazy at this point. Uh, I joined the army uh, right after Saddam it invaded Kuwait. Okay, so this was Desert Storm, Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So this is ninety one, ninety nine, yeah, ninety. Okay, because um, I was in the army. I was ninety to ninety three in the army. And, and were you inspired because of the invasion? Uh, you know, when you were like the U.S. is having some interventionalism in the Middle East, I want to get in on it, get some excitement was, after five years of college. Well, the way it worked was for me was joining the military was something I had thought about, and I actually had applied and been accepted for Naval Aviation Officer Candidate School. Okay, not to be a pilot because my eyes are, despite apparently being beautiful, are awful when it comes to actually doing their job oh i've seen world war ii so, footage you can just drop a bomb anywhere yeah it doesn't really yeah. matter uh the the military discourages people with eyesight that's not good from being pilots for some reason huh. i don't know weird seems unfair and it denies my agency as we they say today but stop dis- uh stop discriminating yeah. against the blind yeah air force yeah so i i had been accepted for that but then i didn't graduate columbia on time right so i lost my slot and then I so I was still there, and then the whole Saddam thing happened, and I was sitting around with a bunch of people at Turney House, and they were all going, "We should go over there and kick his ass." Right. And I looked around, and I just thought, "What do you mean we? You're not going anywhere." And then I thought, you know what? I sort of feel like we should go kick his ass too, because mm-hmm. I was a lot more interventionist back then than I am now. Right. And and I said, well, if I feel that way, I should probably go sign up. And like a day or two later, I went to an army recruiter's office and signed up. And a couple months later, I was in basic training. And how drunk were you when you decided to sign up? Not at all. Sober? Not at all, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So what were you, uh, so when you went and you signed up two weeks later, you were in basic training. What was that process like? It happened so quick. Were you expecting the life-changing, were you uh, expecting it to be as life-changing as it was? I mean, because it really just uproots you and they send you over to a random place and. Well, yeah, I mean, it wasn't, 
just to be clear, it was like two or maybe even three months later. Okay. That I got my class slot or at, at basic. So so there was time to think about it and stuff like that. It wasn't like I signed up one day and the next day, you know, like in the movies and the next day someone's right. yelling at you and your hair your head's getting shaved or whatever. Yeah. I had some time to reflect on my awful decision, which I kid because I think it was a great decision. Right. Um, it seems it like- was. I, it was a great experience. I, I I did not get sent. I served during Desert Storm, but not in Desert Storm. Okay. I did not get sent to the Mid East. Uh, I think mainly because it was, it was basically over by the time I got out through, uh, basic training and, right. and advanced training and airborne school. We had the war was over because it was a really quick. That one was a really quick one. Mm-hmm. Um. So I spent a lovely year in Korea instead. This is amazing. Well, they sent me to Korea. This, I don't know for a fact, but my my guess is when I was in advanced training, a bunch of us were sitting around one day and we're like, you know, where do you want to be stationed or whatever? And I just remember saying, uh, anywhere but Korea. I just don't want to go to Korea. And I am convinced that somebody with some level of power overheard that and was like, right. all right, we're sending them to Korea. That's perfect. Because that's what the Army does. What was your experience like in Korea? Did you enjoy it? I I don't know if enjoy is probably not the right word. It was great army experience. Right. And what was one of your favorite experiences over it, there, or one of the biggest uh, culture shocks? Well, okay, so I, I get to Korea, and, and and this is back in 90, 91, 92, I guess. Um, so it might be different now, but at the time, you would fly into Seoul, mm-hmm. and then in the army, you would go one of two places. You would go 2nd Infantry Division, which meant you were headed north, the, to the northern part of South Korea, mm-hmm. or Eighth Army, which was more headquarters, rear echelon stuff, and you would be in Seoul or maybe further south or whatever. And so I, you don't know what unit you're going to until you get there. Yeah. So I get there, and you're like, all right, your second infantry division, and so you're already you're like, all right, I'm going to play with the big boys. Yeah. And then you get to second ID headquarters. I may be misremembering this, but this is how it is in my head, so that makes it true. And then, so within the 2nd Infantry Division, you could be in an infantry unit, which would be frontline, you know, the grunts. Right. You could be in a in a different combat unit, artillery, something like that, or you could be in a support unit, communications, mm-hmm. you know, headquarters, whatever. So I find out I'm going to an infantry unit. So it's like, all right, I'm two for two now. And then I find out the unit I'm going to literally had just left for a 90-day rotation on the DMZ, the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, okay. to patrol it. So it's basically, as far as being in Korea goes, I was three for three in getting the most hardcore possible unit. Right, right. Uh, which is, you know, straight out of, uh, out of basic and advanced training is like, all right, I guess. And what were the tensions there? I mean, obviously it, the North Koreans and the South Koreans still not getting along, and no. they certainly weren't getting along then either. Yeah, it was, I, I mean, it was, you know, we never had any war situations. There are, uh, I was there when I... Some of your older listeners may remember there was a little period during, I guess it was 90, I don't remember if it was 91 or 92 when, uh, must have been 90, 91, when Gorbachev, who, who was mm-hmm. the head of the Soviet Union at the time, there was a whole thing where there was there was an attempted coup and he had to flee the Kremlin and there was this whole thing where, and everything was like, you know, holy crap, what's going to happen with Russia? Yeah. And we obviously went on full alert for that. And then everything ended up turning out okay, so it was great. So but, it was uh, like full alert. The alarm goes off. You've got to put the prostitute underneath your bed. You've got to pretend as no, if you, you were... No, you have to... She has to leave. The prostitute has oh, to go. yeah. Yeah. This was full alert. 
than oh my not half alert. Oh, I see. Yeah. There's different levels of alert. There's, did, yeah. <laughs> did you dabble in the prostitution? Uh, I did not. I can but honestly say I did not. How do you avoid it? I feel like that's the whole point. You get it's sex. easy to, is, it's honestly, it's easy to avoid it. You just, you don't pay women, pe- for, women for sex. Huh. And then suddenly you're not sleeping with prostitutes. Isn't that something? Yeah. It's, it's, people don't realize how simple it is. Yeah. Yeah. So you spent a couple of years in, or one, one year in Korea, three years in the military total. And uh, what was your parents' reaction when you decided to sign up? Did, did they encourage it? Did you come from a military background? Not a full mil- no. My, my dad had been in uh, in the Navy during the Korean War, actually. Okay. Uh, but we're not like a you know. I think going back, my grandfather had served on on my mom's side. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was back when there was a draft, and you know. You, yeah, you were serving, um, but no, no, it's not like a huge. I don't come from a, a long line of you know military ancestors and stuff. Right, like that, going back to the Civil War and whatever, you know. Uh, so you get back. So now you're you're back in school, and you decide to go with political science. Well, I'd already gone when I left Columbia. When I joined the army, I, I was eleven credits short of my degree. I was, oh, okay. It was basically three classes, but I hadn't finished. <laughs> I hadn't finished my language requirement, and I hadn't taken the one semester art class that most people take as freshmen to get it over with. Right, right. And I just sort of had kept putting it off. Yeah, and <laughs> and then never took it. I was so bad with foreign languages. Oh, Awful. me too. That was the worst. I, oh, it's terrible. Yeah. I ended up taking sign language. Really? Yeah, they counted that as a foreign language, and I don't know how, I don't know why, but I'm very appreciative because I, I can't get my tongue to move a whole series yeah, of different I, ways. I totally understand. My my problem was, in high school, I took German, mm-hmm. and then I got to Columbia, and Columbia had a, I think you had to do two years of language. It was right. a requirement. And I decided, I don't want to take German anymore. I'm going to take Russian, because that sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's also really fucking hard. Mm-hmm. And for someone who is generally not great at foreign languages, taking a hard one is turns out really, really dumb. Well, you, and gotta, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, you gotta. You know, if you're taking Russian, if you're studying Russian, you gotta immerse yourself in the culture. Dr- exactly. You gotta be drunk. Yes. You gotta have a bunch of yes, five ounces of vodka, and then you can speak fluent Russian. And, it can happen to anybody. And I think the problem was that at the time I was more of a bourbon drinker than a vodka drinker, uh, and that's what screwed me ultimately. Right. So you just started speaking with a southern accent, and that's yeah, which served me well in the military. Right. 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 So that was good. That is perfect. Yeah. So when did you fe- when did you realize that you had a uh, a desire to, or do you even have the desire? Did you have the desire to go and, uh, you know, inform the world about your views? Because you're a very, you're a quiet guy. You seem I to be am. a relatively introverted man. I am. Uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And a lot of people can, they have a difficult time balancing that duality, and they often uh, scoff or they mock a uh, celebrity who says that they're an introvert because they're like, but you're on TV. I mean, but these things can be, are not mutually exclusive. They're not, but I, I never had any, any, any desire to be in front of the camera. I mean, I lived in L.A. for 10 years yeah. before this, and if, you're, if you want to be in front of the camera, you figure you'd probably try it in L.A. Mm-hmm. Nope, not interested. I am, as you said, I, I am basically an introvert. I, it's, it's not my thing. Um, so uh, this whole being on TV thing kind of happened by accident for me. And I straight up, honestly, for the first, I would say three, four months, my hands were shaking every time I was on TV. Right. Like I would try to keep them down low off camera, but they were, they were literally shaking because it's such a foreign thing for me. You were in Los Angeles for 10 years. I was. And uh, you were a keyboardist in a cover band. 
well, I was a, the last three years I was in LA, I was a keyboard player in, in an actual band and, oh, okay. and in a cover band. Okay. So yeah. you, did the cover band cover your actual band's music? No, because that would a, just really it, be a yeah, mind fuck. That would be really cool. Actually. Yeah. It's a great idea. Um, no, the cover band was, was super, super fun. And we would play like, you know, sort of deep cuts from big bands or people like David Bo. I don't, I don't mean big band like Glenn Miller and stuff mm, like that. Right, I right, mean, right. Like huge bands. That's my kind of music. Yeah. Mm. Um, but, uh, that, uh, playing a band was really fun. And you enjoyed your LA experience. Did you go out there to pursue, so you didn't go out there to pursue a career in entertainment. You just went out there for the, for the beautiful women and the nice weather. I went out there. I was working, uh, when I got out of the army, I finished up school. Right. And then I got, uh, an internship at NBC news in Washington. Okay. And I was there for three years. There was a long time in my life where I did things in three-year chunks, and I, yeah. it was really weird. It was the Army for three years, and it was NBC for three years. It, what was, was, it what, was very weird. What was it about news that, that uh, got you so addicted? Because I love the uncertainty in the world. And, you know, when you are with news, when you are working in news, you have to follow things in real time. And every single day, you never know what's going to be occurring. Obviously, occasionally there are situations like we had in Paris um, – Recently, with the atrocities, but then you have, you know, good things, you know, whatever it might be. The, let's just say the Mets actually win a World Series. You might cover this. What was it about news that drew you into it? I don't know. Um, I, when I finished up at school, I, I found out about this. Uh, there was this, when I'd been to Columbia, uh, me and some friends started an alternative campus newspaper. Okay. And, and was this a, a liberal, conservative, libertarian? It was conservative slash libertarian. Okay. Um, mostly. It, it, there was some liberal stuff, too, but it was mostly, if you're going to be alternative at a place like Columbia, you're you're not going to be liberal. Right. Um, so as part of that, we had gotten funding from an organization that I could be screwing this up. I th- believe it's called the Institute for Collegiate Studies, ICS, or something like that. So I, I don't even remember how I found out that this ICS thing had been set up. Um, I, I I totally can't remember it all, but there was there was a connection between Tim Russert, who at the time was the NBC right. News bureau chief in DC, great guy. Yes, um, he and Daniel Patrick Moynihan okay. were very good friends. If I remember correctly, Moynihan had something to do with this Institute for Collegiate Studies. Anyway, they had set up this this internship program. Okay, so I I found this out, and so I I I. Went down to D.C. and I interviewed and and I got this job. You wowed him with those beautiful I wowed him blues. With my eyes, apparently, yes. Um, so I started out as an intern there, working on the assignment desk. Mm-hmm. And then after about ten months, a space opened up, an actual job on the assignment desk as a desk assistant. And they asked me if I was interested, and I was. So I took that, and then I did that for a year. And then a space opened up. Pete Williams, who covers uh, Supreme Court, mm-hmm. Justice Department, all that good stuff for NBC, and who is beyond a doubt the one of the greatest human beings that's ever walked the earth. He, there was an opening, sort of working with him as like a researcher slash associate producer. What made him such a great person? Just uh, first of all, just flat out incredibly nice. Yeah, uh, and one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. Just, just good hearted. I, I can't. Could not say enough good things about him. Mm. He's just an all-around, just an amazing person. And working with him was great. Uh, we covered, I was there for, oh man, it was the Olympic bombing, mm. TWA 800, 
uh, a whole bunch of huge things happened always while I was working so with him. when it comes we were we had a great conversation earlier when it comes to people especially now in this uh, in this Twitter era in this uh, you know in this time of immediate uh, knee-jerk reactions uh, that can be seen on social media every time a tragedy happens. Uh, what was your experience like when it comes to news and dealing with, you know, bombings? And how do you re- remain respectful but also cover the story without completely doing uh, yellow journalism, without completely, uh, you know, making something, um, exaggerating something to a point where it becomes right. comical? Yeah, well, Pete would never do something like that. So covering stuff like that was, you know, he was the one on the air and doing all the stuff. And and like I said, he he's just fantastic. There is one thing I remember, though. It was before I worked with Pete when I was a desk assistant. I was working, I think it was one weekend. I don't remember who the correspondent was. There was a train crash. Mm. I think it was an Amtrak train had crashed with a local train out of Baltimore. I could be wrong about that. It was 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago. Um. And one of my jobs, they, they, they said, look, we have a list of, of names of the people who were hurt. And they, I had to take a, a yellow pages cause, or a white pages because this was barely maybe the internet was just starting yeah. back then, but nobody really used it. And I had to find similar names and try to call to get uh, relatives mm. so that we could interview them. And I couldn't do it. I, hmm. Like, it's just so not my thing. And I pretended that I had, and I was like, yeah, I, I haven't been able to get a hold of anyone. And I just, I couldn't do it. It's, hmm. and I could, and I'm not knocking it because I do know that as distasteful as it can be, it is a thing that news organizations do. Yes. And the good ones do do it respectfully, but you do it. What was but it about the process? I mean, I, was I just, it just the, was it just the calling and did you feel as if you were going to be using them in a way or as opposed because now a lot of times they'll be like we're just getting their story out. Right. But they're in in reality the the mother is crying Yeah, and, and, I, and I just it's just yeah. not I, I couldn't I for whatever reason it's just just so not my personality to do something like that. I don't know, it right. just felt too eh to yeah. me. Still recognizing that it's a legitimate thing that news organizations do. I, but I realized it's not something I could ever do. Right. So going back just uh, just a little bit, you started a conservative libertarian newspaper at yeah. Columbia University. What was one of the reasons, or what sort of shaped your political identity? Um, was this a was it sort of a family thing, or your parents relatively conservative, yeah. or when you went to, uh, or was it the uh, was it just the reaction to uh, what? collegiate liberalism looks like, uh, which is a very easy thing to uh, sort of revolt against and uh, go down the more libertarian vein. It was definitely, that was definitely part of it. What happened was I got to Columbia and my my first semester, there were these big protests uh, for, it was divestment from South Africa. It was mm. for the university to, you know, not have its money in companies that did business with South Africa. This was the big movement. And this was because of, uh, was it because apartheid. of the, apartheid? Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, when I got, I was super liberal in high school and whatever. And when I got to Columbia, right. one of the reasons I wanted to go to Columbia or was it, why it was one of my top choices was it had that history of the whole 60s radicalism and yeah. everything. So I got involved in these protests, got put on academic probation. Um, but I, I learned a couple things. One, and I still have this to this day, I don't trust activists. Mm. And why? Because I, and it's, it, 
I'm not saying they're all like this, and, right. and, and a, a lot of them aren't, and that they believe wholeheartedly in their cause, and they're not in it for themselves. What I saw at these protests was, I, I saw, first of all, I saw people who were in it because they wanted to be, you know, on TV or mm-hmm. whatever. I also saw what happens when I, I, these protests got big enough that some of the big shots, Jesse Jackson came to campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, C. Vernon Mason, who at the time was, you know, very active in stuff like this. People of my age might recognize his name. <laughs> people like that came to campus. And what happened is you had a you had a protest movement that and protest movements always start off with like, well, there's no real leader. We're right. all in this together. But suddenly when people like, you know, oh, Jesse Jackson's coming. Suddenly there are people who want to be the leader very much because they want to be the ones in the room with Jesse Jackson. Right. And it just it changes people. And even if they're, you know, whether you believe in their cause or not or believe that putting chains on a classroom building is a good idea, which apparently I did at the time and now think I'm in, I was an idiot. <laughs> um, you can respect the fact that, OK, they they honestly believe what they believe. But. It warped like the fame warps them. Not right. always, and, and and but 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 I've seen I saw it happen, and so when I see now, I, I see people who you know you see the same people who pop up every time there's a protest right. throughout the country, and it may well be that they are one hundred percent. This is what they believe, and they are in it for the movement. And yeah, you can completely disagree with them, whatever. But yeah. they, but they. But I just start, it's sort of like my spider sense starts tingling and I right. start thinking, eh, you know what, you're getting on TV an awful lot from this and maybe that's not a good thing. So you're saying there's sort of an institution behind the protest. There, it, there's a business model to protest and people are financially gaining from these yeah, protests. Yeah, and I don't, I don't, again, I don't know that, I don't think that they set out to do stuff like that with a right. few exceptions like, you know, Al Sharpton or whatever. Who, sure. Whatever. Um, but I, I do, I do think there are people who get, they get sort of co-opted and they, they, they get to like the spotlight and it becomes more about them than about the thing that they are supposedly fighting for. Right. So once you but, saw that. So I saw, so I saw that and it turned me off and then like, I, this is like the most embarrassing thing in the world cause it's so cliche. I read Ayn Rand. Okay. Because that's what you do when you're in college, you know. Yeah, when you want to be alone and have no right, friends exactly, and uh, yeah. never kiss a woman. Right. Um, so I read the – someone gave me the Fountainhead and was like, mm-hmm. hey, you should read this. I, I bet you'd like it. And this is – I was a liberal. Yeah. And it was given to you in a dark alley in a paper like, bag with a man yeah, smoking yeah, in the top like, hat. You know, this is free, but the next – you know, first taste <laughs> is free. But uh, then I have all these other books and he opens his, you know, mm-hmm. jacket. And I read The Fountainhead, and I, for whatever reason, that started me thinking, ah, maybe there's something, you know, to tying economic freedom to personal freedom and stuff like that. And that led me to, well, unfortunately, that led me to reading everything that Ayn Rand, I think, literally had ever written. Oh, my goodness. In, like, the space of a year. Oh, it was insane. I must have, I can't imagine how insufferable I was. Um the good thing is, what was it? What is it really? Just, just briefly for those that haven't read uh, Ayn Rand, and honestly, I mean, I haven't because it's just a lot of words. It is a lot. I of mean, words. these books. It, yeah, 
and go go kiss your husband. Yeah. Do something with your life. Look, The Fountainhead, but, I, I still maintain The Fountainhead is a good book, but right. that's all you need to read. But what was it about uh, her philosophy that really sort of broke you out of this? Obviously, you saw what um, institutional what the institutional left looks like, so you, you had that uh, sort of negative taste in your mouth, and then you had this outlet through Anne. What were, or what is it, on? I don't know, A-Y-N. I don't know how these people, I don't know anything. Um, but Iron. Iron. It's easy enough. Ian, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. I'll take it. Uh, what was it about her philosophy that drew you to it? It was. I think what it was is, look, I, w- I was 18, 19 years old, and, you know, the left always talked, always seemed to me to be about, it was, it was you know, fight the, it was fight the power, but it was also like, you know, power to the people and, and, and whatever. And reading Ayn Rand was like, well, the ultimate power to the people is the power to the individual. Right. And I think it was that that kind of drew, kind of sucked me in. Mm-hmm. And I went, like I said, I went through a year of, of thinking everything she said was, you know, the best thing in the world. And yes, people need to be more selfish. Altruism is evil. And then right. I, I don't, maybe I, after a year, maybe I banged my head or something. And then that, I was like, wait a minute, what the hell? <laughs> um, but the good thing about Ayn Rand is she led me to read other libertarians. Right. And... And that helped me to formulate, to, to realize, okay, th- there's a lot of stuff that she says that is just, can I say batshit crazy? Of course, yeah. Batshit crazy. Um, what was the libertarian that you read uh, after Ian that, uh, that influenced you? I think the ones I read were, um, well, we actually read, which was sort of around the same time, Robert Nozick. Uh, Anarchy, State, and Utopia okay. is a book that we actually read. Like I said, we had to take that year-long philosophy class, and that was my freshman year, and and that was a book that we read. Um, and that laid out a pretty good concept of libertarianism. And then there was also there was John Stuart Mill, uh, libertarian-ish. And I'm trying to think who else. I guess from there I went to the Murray Rothbard and a whole bunch of the more contemporary, sure. at the time, libertarian philosophers. And look, I, I, I don't know even now that I'm a full-on libertarian, um, and I also don't know how many of your listeners have already shut this off because they want me to shut the hell up about libertarianism. No, they don't. No one but, shuts uh, off the show. That's the rule. <laughs> this is just on. It blares, in their, it, it blares on their iPods like Kim Jong-un blares in a North Korean home. It's ridiculous. So, uh, so you got your, uh, so you have your libertarian identity now. You you believe in this sort of political philosophy. You're you go to NBC News. You're doing the internship. You're working in news. And uh, where does your life go from there? It, it, obviously, you didn't love all the news. You couldn't call the relatives uh, of victims from this Amtrak attack. Why did you stick with news? Because that well, does seem to be sort of a cornerstone of news is investigating and um, right. But I didn't stick with news. Because when I left, what happened was I, I left, when I was working at NBC, I, I, had dated, I dated this girl for a while, and then she moved, she was from California, she moved back to, L, she moved to LA. Okay. And we were still friends. And she got hooked up with uh, the Academy of Motion Pictures, the, mm. the people who do the Oscars. And she became friendly with the people who work there, and she told, she was like, hey, you know, they, they staff up for the Oscars, they hire a couple of publicists, you should apply for the job. Hmm. I was like, all right, I've never done PR before, but sure. So I sent some kind of bullshit cover letter saying, well, my years in news, which was like two at the time, yeah, you know, 
in my years at news, I have read many pitches from PR people, so I know what works and what doesn't, whatever. And they were nice enough to say, yeah, you know, if you want to come out, we're not going to pay you to fly to L.A. for an interview, but if you want to come out here and interview, sure, you know, we, we'll definitely sit down with you. Yeah. And I went out and interviewed, and somehow I got that job. So I, after three years in D.C., I, I packed up and moved to L.A. And the main reason I did is because I've always loved movies. Mm-hmm. And I think D.C. now is a lot better than it was back then. There's a lot more stuff to do. But I, by the end of my third year in D.C., I hated that place. Yeah. I couldn't wait to, to leave it. It was so damn political. Mm. Um, I remember at one point talking to a girl in a bar, and, and all of a sudden she said, well, what, what party are you? And I, I said, well, neither. I'm a libertarian. And she just, that was it. She left. Like she, And I was like, all right, this I don't need to be in this city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are weird. Um, so I, I moved to L.A. For, to, to be the publicist for the, the but, Academy Awards. Right. Which was a four-month gig. So I was just like, well, I hope I get something else after that. And luckily I did. And I went from there, and I worked at the Directors Guild for six years. What's your favorite movie? Of all time? Uh, yeah. Uh, 2001. Okay. It's right. a good year, too. Well, not really. Yeah. Bad year, yeah. actually. I'll, you can edit that out, right? <laughs> 2001. All right. So you, so you spent some time over there. You had four months working uh, with the Oscars. Who won the Oscar that year? Do you remember? It was The English Patient. Oh, that's right. I never saw it. Yeah, you know, you know I mean, what is to. it? He he dies, right? Yeah, it was a decent movie. He's English and he dies. He's he was English. He 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 gets uh, hurt and becomes a patient. Huh? Yeah, and then he dies. And then he he dies. And they made a whole movie about that. They did. They did. And it was a long hmm. movie. I like the movies that involve animation mixed with real people. Really, like a little Roger Rabbit. Lo- oh my God, who framed him? Uh huh. Who still- did frame him? Well, I think it was Christopher Lloyd's character. Was it? Yeah. Was it one- though? Well, yeah. that's a good question, I'll give, Andy. I'll give you some pamphlets after the show. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> so you're hanging out in L.A., you come back, uh, and what what brought you back to New York City? Uh, uh, ten years in L.A. was enough. Did you find a libertarian group out there, or did you have no. to keep your political affiliation to yourself if you wanted I, to talk to a woman at a bar? No, I, I didn't talk much politics out there. I, people that knew me knew my political views. Right. Um, but honestly, after, after three years of living in D.C. where it was just politics, 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 I was very relieved to have it never be about politics. Right. And look, it came up when I worked at the Directors Guild. They do political stuff. And I would assume more left-leaning things over you there. You would assume correctly, Ben. Yeah, all yes. right. Wow, I um, wish I could give myself an award. Yeah. Well, I'll have a beer later. All right, <laughs> that'll work. But, I, I mean, look, at a certain, you know, I was doing communications for them. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not... It's not my opinion; it's their opinion, and that that was my job. So that was that was that was my choice. That was fine. Do you agree with the idea of Hollywood liberal bias? I, yeah, to a certain extent, I'm really, really tired of the phrase Hollywood liberal. I think yeah. it's just completely overused, and it's just I just anytime somebody says Hollywood liberal this time, I'm just I don't want to hear the rest of what you have to say. Right, right. Um, that said, it's a real thing. Yeah. So. Uh, you know, you do, you do learn to not speak up a lot. Right. I'm trying to 
phraseless political. No, there's a certain <laughs> chilling effect. You know, for there is. They're absolutely your your boss uh, does not agree with your political yeah. beliefs. So of course, uh, in to in your own self interest, Ian Rand would be proud of you. You preserved it <laughs> right. by preserving your job and allowing yourself to stay in Los Angeles yes. for the amount of time that you did. Yes. No, that that's true, and it's not. Uh, look. Nobody ever again. The people I worked with, whether it was at the academy, maybe not not so much there because it was a four month gig and it had nothing to do with political stuff. But certainly the six years I worked at the Directors Guild, the the people higher up than me, whatever, they knew I was a libertarian and they didn't. It didn't. Right. You know, they were never like you know you you can't be that way. And it never hurt me career wise, or, mm-hmm. you know, at, at my job or anything like that. Did you ever get the feeling that there was an agenda because a lot of um, people who are sometimes perceived as conspiracy theorists, otherwise, uh, other times they are just, uh, you know, telling uh, their version of the truth. Um, did you feel as if there was a Hollywood agenda when it comes to the institution of the, uh, of the Oscars? Because there are no, no movies that I like are ever nominated. I love horror movies. Me too. And at no point are my favorite movies. Like this year, I would say M. Night Shyamalan's, uh-huh. uh, Shyamalan's The Visit uh-huh. would be my Oscar winner for movie of the year. <laughs> really? I just loved it so much. It won't be nominated for anything. No, and I, I don't, know that. I don't think that's a conspiracy though. No, that's not a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. That is not. And I understand I that. I can agree that that's not a conspiracy. I do understand that completely. <laughs> I'm like, why didn't, uh, you know... Um, well, I thought last year, I thought the Babadook should have been nominated. Babadook was amazing, uh, yeah. And I'm blanking on her name, but the, the lead actress in that, that was one of the most phenomenal performances I think I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And I, I was I knew she wasn't going to be nominated, but I was bummed. Yeah. I thought she should have been. Yeah, and the movie You're Next. I love that movie You're Next, mm-hmm. but the, Oscars, the Oscar goes to You're Next. Yeah. You know, it's a film about a family getting butchered by their own children. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it's not, not necessarily a... Yeah, nice spoiler, by the way. Oh, uh, well, if you haven't seen it yet, you're a moron. It doesn't ruin anything that's a it's a very fun film it is but did you but that you, was kind of a twist ending uh it was a bit of a twist away. okay it's fine okay it's fine um did you do you uh did you see any sort of uh intentional political leanings that uh, that, that the um oscars wanted to contribute to and that would then create a uh, a narrative in the country that would benefit them i once i had a when i worked at the motion picture academy i had a I left something in the office and I had to go back and it was really late at night and I, I got You saw there. him with the reptilian and mask? It was like it was like ten to midnight and there were a, a bunch of people in robes going into the conference room. Mm. Um so I, I stood outside and I kinda I, I kinda sneaked around and, and, and I and I it was just it was uh it was a whole group of Jews. <laughs> Just talking about how they could further their agenda. It, was, it really it changed my life seeing that. <laughs> no, I never ever. Uh, I, there's no conspiracy. The only conspiracy in Hollywood is to make money. Right. Um. That said, yeah. Look, you'd have to be. Uh, you'd have to have, be. You know, completely blind to not notice that the films that come out of Hollywood that are political are. F- mostly from one side of the political spectrum. And is that because they make the most amount of money? No, I think that's because the people who make the films are, that's, they're liberal. Right. And, you know, what you're seeing now is, you're, you're seeing films that aren't like that, and but they're not being made really mostly within the studio system. You're seeing the... the Dinesh uh, D'Souza. Yeah, or, um, uh, what is it, God's Not Dead, mm-hmm. um, and a couple other films like that, that are being financed not by the major studios or whatever, and you're seeing more films like that because it's become easier to make and distribute films like that. Right. So people who have a different voice 
can now get that voice heard in a way that they couldn't even 10, 15 years ago, right. really. What are, what are your thoughts on Andrew Breitbart? Because uh, rest in peace, that's yeah. sort of the uh, area that he was able to shine in yes. um, as a non-liberal living in Hollywood for most of his life. Uh, he, he was able to really kind of break the mold. There's a great documentary called Hating Breitbart, and there's another one called Occupy Unmasked, which I uh, recommend highly, um, almost above uh, M. Night Shyamalan's The Visit. Um, <laughs> That's high praise. What, do you, what, do you, what are your thoughts on, uh, and, and on Andrew Breitbart and sort of the libertarian movement that, that he has um, cultivated in, in uh, more liberal places like Hollywood? Yeah, I mean, I, what, what he did was... Was I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. Um, but he really had like I'm. You know, I was I was friends with Andrew, and uh, honestly, I don't, I think without Andrew, there was no Red Eye. Right. Um, and we'll be getting to Red Eye in a second here, people. So just hold. On. Um. And I'm I'm friendly with a lot of people who loathed Andrew Breitbart. And why didn't they like Andrew? Because he was a provocateur, and right. he was a provocateur not on their political side. I mean that you know that's easy. But I would always tell them I I would always say if you ever met him, you would love him. Yeah. And a couple of them who I said that to did meet him, and they were like, yeah, he's I I love him. What's a character trait that Andrew Breitbart had that was um, that made him a draw that made people want to be around him? He would talk. He would. Talk to anyone. And by talk to, I don't mean talk at. I mean, right. he would talk to anyone. He would talk to someone who completely disagreed with him. And he would listen to them. And then he would explain to them why, in his eyes, they were wrong. Yeah. But they would. he would also... He had a way of finding sort of common ground, I guess, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term. That, that even if you ultimately disagreed with him... You were like, all right, I, I see where you're coming from. Right. And, you know, I think that that was what... But he also was just... He was just a gregarious guy yeah. and... How'd you guys meet? We met... Um, well, I guess... He, I, once Red Eye started, he, he did a couple of the test tapings that we did before the show aired. Okay. Um, and I think he was the one, if I remember my history correctly, he was the one that, that sort of recommended Greg. Greg Gutfeld. Said, said to yeah. Fox, hey, you guys should be in business with Greg Gutfeld. So at this point, I mean, Breitbart had BigGovernmentGoing.com uh, and a couple of other, he had like three websites that were all just absolutely massive. And he totally capitalized on new media. He was a genius. He saw what new yeah. media was going to be. And uh, the uh, the foresight is just is, is yeah. just phenomenal. Um, so at that point he had uh, sort of become a name and he had enough clout with this was before that this is before so this is before big Hollywood and big government oh and all okay that stuff he was I, I don't remember I think he knew someone I, I honestly I, I would be lying if I said I remembered the story because I don't but he was even before that stuff you know he 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 was doing drudge mm -hmm. um, and he helped Ariane Huffington set up the Huffington Post so he was you know he was already known even before he launched his own stuff right he was he was known and uh you know again if i'm not butchering this story i i, I know i keep saying that but you're I, the only one who knows it so you can my, you can my, make my memory it all up. is so bad these days that i don't want to brian williams this whole thing <laughs> uh just or, don't say you were shot ben cart you know i, yeah, I yeah. don't want to start talking about the pyramids <laughs> um and then and then bright park tried to stab me but my huh. belt yeah isn't that something uh <laughs> But no, so so he he said to someone at Fox 
I feel like it was someone. I honestly don't remember who it was. Anyway, he. I don't know how he knew Greg. I, or I probably knew at one point, but like I said, my mind is a sieve. He recommended the whole Greg thing, and and that's that was the genesis of Red Eye. Yeah. So, and then when we did the first, you know, the, we did like a week of test tapings the week before the show was going to air, and he came to New York or was in New York, and and he did he was a panelist for a couple of them, and then I think our first week, I think he was on twice, I think in our mm. first week. So really, I, I'm not. When I say without Breitbart, there was no Red Eye, I'm not exaggerating. Right. I don't think it ever would have happened without him. Red Eye, 3 o'clock in the morning on Fox News. Great show. Check it out. Um, let's go back ever, uh, just a second. So how did you even get in the position to um, be called up for Red Eye? Were you working at Fox News? No. I was uh, I was writing with Greg. Okay. Um, Red Eye fans who are listening to this have heard the story before, so you can skip ahead. Um when I came back from L.A., Greg, Greg had a blog at the Huffington Post, and it was really, really funny. And I started leaving comments there, which is something I n- had never done yeah. for a blog before and pretty much have never done since. Um, and he sort of noticed my comments, and uh, I, I, it sort of went from there. So this is how you guys met? This is how we met. Then got- I, I started my own blog off of that. Okay. And... I, I, at one point, I, I linked to something Greg had written or whatever, and he tr- found my email address and said, hey, I really like your comments, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. This guy hmm. who's writing, I like, just emailed me. And I emailed him back, and I was like, oh, thanks, you know, whatever. And I figured that was that. Then he replied to my reply, and we started an email relationship. And then he would say, hey, I just posted on over at HuffPo, you know, go over there and leave a comment. And from there, it was sort of like, okay, this is what I'm working on for HuffPo. What do you think? Do you have any ideas? Mm. And then from that, he started his own blog, uh, The Daily Gut, and said, he said, I'm, I'm launching my own blog with a whole series of little blogs, and I want you to be part of it. Right. And so I started writing with him. And then like uh, six months or whatever after that, he was like, hey, Fox approached me about, the- we had never met. He was living in England. He was the editor of Maxim UK. Oh, okay. So we had never, ever met in person. And so he said, hey, Fox approached me about doing this goofy late night show. Uh, I'm flying to New York to meet with them. You know, come, let's have drinks or whatever. Mm. So that was the first time I met Greg. And then from there, they started doing test tapings and stuff like that. So this relationship between you and Greg, it's fascinating when you have something like social media actually come together in a real-life way. I don't know if this would occur anymore when it... uh, Well, I mean, I suppose it does occur. People follow each other on Twitter. They meet up in real life, and maybe you can have a, a, you know... An actual, uh, you know, relationship in in a business sense and in a, in a friendship sense, also. Um, so, when you first met Greg, was it uh, was it interesting to just see this person face to face? Who I guess, for all intents and purposes, you were pen pals with, yeah, to some degree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, we met at a bar and it was a bunch of people, and um, yeah. and you know, yeah, no, it was great, and we hit it off and whatever. Um, and still, at this time, you had no desire to be in front of a camera. And Greg is like, I have this thing that I want you to be a part of where you are going to be consistently in front of a camera. Well, at the time, I didn't know if I was going to be. I figured, yeah, I'll write for this show or mm. whatever. I never entered my mind, really, that I would be in front of the camera. But then we started doing these test things, and 
I was in front of the camera and was horrible. What was your first? Okay, so the director says five, four, three, two, yeah. one. Andy, you're yeah. on. And what was your? Uh, how fast was your heart beating? And how sweaty were your palms? Uh, very fast and very sweaty would be my. I don't remember exactly, but that would be my guess. It's also a great name for a porno. Very fast, yeah, actually, very yeah, sweaty. Yeah. The Andy Levy story. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we did these weird tapings that was it was originally called Wasteland. Okay. was the name. And we were sitting in, it was like a, uh, it was like a crew, a, a break room at over at Fox where, where the crew would hang out, you know, when they weren't working on a show or whatever. But it was like dingy and, and it was not one of the nicer break rooms. But that's what they wanted. That was this was the idea, right? And um, so we did that. And I, I mean, I think it's in, incredibly fair to say that I was really, really bad. But then somehow they, someone at Fox, they looked at this and they said, "All right, well, there's there's something there with Greg, and there's a, there's an idea." And so they had this idea for Red Eye and. What was Wasteland? What was the uh, premise behind Wasteland? Did that one was it was it uh, similar to Red Eye, or did it, when when Fox got a hold of it, did they did they alter the product in a way that uh, that was 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 extreme was extreme? No, it was. I mean, it was basically four people or so, four or five people sitting around in again in this break room, so like a couple people on a couch, oh, one I person see. in a chair, and with these swooping cameras. And it was, I mean, it. I think we were trying to way too hard to be edgy. It was yeah. like, you know, oh, we need MTV camera moves and stuff like that. And then I think it was actually more nausea-inducing than anything <laughs> else. <laughs> but, um, but the germ of the idea for Red Eye was there, you right. know, where it was people talking about issues in a lighthearted, you know, kind of way. Mm -hmm. So the germ of the idea was there. It just was like, all right, well... I don't know. Then eventually it became. Let's try it in a studio, in a in a you know a a more traditional setting, but with some of the but like you keep some of your weirdness, but you marry it to a traditional setting. Right. Um, How did you uh, the concept of TV's Andy Levy? Um, you know, sort of this newsman. This um, <laughs> this. Uh, I don't know. I almost get the feeling with you. It's like. Newsman after the after the camera is off, mm -hmm. but the camera's on, and you're just like, <sighs> you know, like this is this is my news life. This uh -huh. is, you know, I, I feel like there's a certain um, anti-performance to your performance, yeah, uh, which is extremely uh, adorable, and uh, that's what makes it so lovable. <laughs> is because you feel like you're watching somebody um, in a real organic way. Uh, where, how long did it take you to hone that? Because as a performer. Ironically enough, when you begin, you you perform, and you can you and people can read that, and they right. can see when you're not being your authentic self, yeah. especially in news. I mean, we're, again, we're not acting; uh, we are uh, caricatures of ourselves, uh, slightly uh, you know extended versions of ourselves. But for the most part, it's rooted in truth. How long did it take you to hone the entire sort of uh, image that you have now? I don't. Uh, it's a good question. I think, first of all, I think you're giving me way too much credit. In thinking that I was doing anything other than just sort of, this is trying not to shit your this pants. This is all yeah. I can do. <laughs> you know? yeah. It's like it's like yeah no I it's like uh, oh yeah it's an anti performance. It's like no I just am a horrible performer. <laughs> I think it's more what it. Well, I am not even kidding though, but it is sort of 
one of the things I based it on was, and and this is one of the reasons I will always love Andrew Breitbart, is he was the first person to get this. I loved the the dynamic that David Letterman and Chris Elliott had uh, back in the day mm. when Chris Elliott would do these characters. He was the, the guy under the seats. Uh, he, he used to do all these characters, and it would always be in, in an interview with Dave that started out friendly, and then it would become, and Chris Elliott would just, you know, get contentious with him. Like, what do you mean by that, Dave? And Dave would be like, "No, I'm just saying." And and, and but but Chris yeah. but Chris would take things the wrong way, and and that was sort of the way I wanted my relationship with Greg to be. Right. And I remember about a, I think it was it wasn't that long into the show, a couple of months into it or something like that. Breitbart came up to me and said, "You're doing Chris Elliott," and I was like. Thank you. Yeah, you are the you're the first person to say that. That's hilarious. Which obviously, means I'm doing it really badly, but <laughs> but at least someone got what I was going for. But I don't know where the like I can tell you what because people ask me this all the time where the name TV's Andy Levy came from. Yeah, we for a while on Red Eye we were doing a fake apologies at the top of the show, and we would be apologizing for something that never happened. Mm. You know, basically. Um, and I think Greg did the, Greg did them and Bill Schultz probably did some. And then I was like, well, you know, let me do one. And the way they were written was like, like Greg would say, hi, I'm Greg, I'm, I'm Greg Gutfeld. And I wrote mine and I just started thinking about the, like, you see those in like on infomercials, you see an actor or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they would say, hi, I'm, I'm TV's, you know, Robert Wagner right, or something like that. So I just, I literally, I just, I was like, hi, I'm TV's Andy Levy. I just wrote that. And people got such a kick out of it. I was like, I got to keep calling myself that because it's yeah. so dumb and so funny, right? And and then it just became. And then I started like going into the scripts where like Greg would introduce me for the halftime report, and they would say, you know, we go to Andy Levy, and I just wrote in TVs. And then I finally said to our line producer, I said I, to our line producer, I said, you got to put that in the master copy so it's there every day because I'm getting tired of going in. And it just became. That's what I'm known as from now on. And it, the, right. whole, so the whole thing started as a goof. But I still, to this day, people are like, why are you called TV's Andy Levy? As if <laughs> it was some organic thing that people just started calling me. And I'm like, it's a dumb name I made up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't, going back to your whole thing, I don't know. Look, I'm better at it now than I was eight years ago. Like, I can now, to some extent, I can project what I want to project mm -hmm. in terms of a persona. But it it did really start out as sort of like this is this 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 is me, and this is the stuff that I find funny is mm -hmm. is sort of like you know we we this fake cantankerous relationship yeah and then the whole idea that my job was to correct mistakes sort of fit in perfectly with that because yeah. I could sit there and and call panelists and call Greg an idiot or whatever and, right and, but. Hopefully, do it in a way that wasn't off-putting to the audience because it was part of the it was part of the character mm -hmm. of you know the quote-unquote ombudsman. Um, so how do you? Uh, okay, so I've done Red Eye now about I don't know nine or ten times. Seventy-four, or I think. Seventy-four yeah. times. Oh yeah. my god! Yeah. And uh, when you perform on those shows, uh, it's live to tape, and uh, so you kind of go home and, and you kind of sit there and you kind of wait wait for the reaction. Yeah. And uh, how long did it take? For you, or maybe I, I don't I, I don't know if you've ever gotten over it um, before you 
or were you terrified after you would tape and then the the show is going to air? Did you ever have just immense fear until the show aired and you're like, okay, it's done now. Uh, the reaction, the world did not explode. Right. Nobody hates me. Right. I, it's it's okay. I to this day, pretty much, just on a personal level, if I think I sucked on the show, I will completely and utterly shut down social media at 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, if I just think, if I said, oh, God, the halftime report sucked tonight. I just, I was awful. Uh, I'm like, yeah, I don't I don't need to. Has there ever been a time Twitter where you're tonight. like, I just crushed, and then all of the tweets were just negative, and you're like, what the hell happened? Yes. Uh, well, I guess. I don't care about those times. Right. If I think if if I think it was good, then I'm okay with with other people not thinking it was good. Right. But I am a fairly good self critic, mm. and I can and also I've been doing it long enough where I can tell if the halftime was good or not. It's sometimes hard to tell if a show was good or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's too many, like, seeing it on TV, like, sometimes a show is fun, and you're like, oh, that was a really fun show. And then you watch it back, and you're like, I guess it was fun to be a part of, but it's not that much fun to watch. Yeah, some people... And some, then sometimes it's vice versa. Right. Sometimes you're like, oh, that, that show felt like a struggle, and then you watch it, and it was like, oh, that was that was actually good. Yeah. Um, but I I can pretty much tell if if my segment has gone well or not. Th- right. There's a feeling to it... It it all, it's obviously it starts with me having good stuff, but it I could have the greatest stuff in the world, and if the panel doesn't organically, if it doesn't work the back and forth, right, it's gonna be awful. Conversely, I could have the worst stuff in the world, and my jokes could be awful, whatever. But if the panel is really good, and what I say sparks something, or they have a great reaction to it. It can turn out to be a great halftime report. I will exclude myself from this next question because I would know the answer if I was involved in it. Favorite panelist? I no, I hate that question. You hate them all. You hate all no, the panelists. No, ben no, Kidd, no, then it's me. No. So just say my name. No, the, What's your? Who's your favorite panelist? This will be a good soundbite. Ben Kissel. Ben Kissel. TV's Andy Levy. You heard it. I, I, just, I just organically gave the Nixon peace sign. That was embarrassing. <laughs> that was embarrassing. Uh... The reason I hate that question is inevitably I leave someone out that I really like, or it's just, we can just it, say Andrew Breitbart. It's a he was. I mean, he was great. I, throughout the years, there've been so many panelists that I have loved and least favorite you know, panelist. We have a list of those. <laughs> um, is there ever a disagreement with Hal that? Sparks? Hal Sparks was. God awful. Hell Sparks for the for those that don't know, he used to host a show on E Entertainment yeah. Television. Yeah, uh, he's a bit of a uh, sort of a I guess kind of a Pee Wee Herman type. Uh, he's kind of loud and uh, yes, mildly uh, aggravating. So, yeah. what was it about Hal Sparks that made him a terrible panelist? And this will be good for the for the listeners who want to uh, you know put themselves on television. <laughs> this will be a uh, lesson in what not to do. He, in his case. He just wouldn't shut the hell up, mm. and he just was interrupting everyone, and I, Greg would go to someone else with a question, and he would answer it, and it just... I remember at the end of halftime saying, yeah, now back to Red Eye with Hal Sparks, because he just tried to dominate the show, and it was just awful. Uh, another bad night was a, com- a really... Paul Provenza, who is a really, mm. really, really funny comedian, did this 
weird, creepy thing where he sort of hit on Ann Coulter, who was on the show with her tonight that night. And it did got, he want to be turned to stone? It, it, whatever it was, whatever bit he thought he was doing, it really just didn't work. Like it got to the point where we, which I don't think we've ever done before or since, we changed the seating. Sure. Really, we, we moved. I think we moved Anne and someone else. So, so she was visibly uncomfortable by the interaction. Everyone was visibly uncomfortable by the interaction. I think Paul. I, I, I don't know him, so I've never. I, again, I, and I think he's hilarious, and he directed The Aristocrats, which is a fantastic right. movie. I think he just had a bad night. Like he had a bad night, or he was doing a bit that he thought was going to be funny, and it turned out not to be, which can happen, but. Yeah, that old sexual harassment it bit. Was, that always wins the was, crowd over. It was so uncomfortable to watch. And, I, I mean, so those are the two names. Yeah. And and the sad part about it is not, not so much Sparks, but Prevenza, because he's it's so funny, probably would be an unbelievable guest. Right. He just, but it's never, you know, because of what happened, it's... That's not happening. He's on the list. There's one amazing thing. Well, there's many amazing things about walking around um, News Corp, Fox News in general. I mean, you get to see just real icons in uh, in the in, in politics, and there's always celebrities coming in and out. Um, when do you do you do you uh, try to remember how exciting that is, or is it just a job now where you're just like, oh, there's uh, there's former. President, uh, you know, whoever. Jimmy Carter happens mm. to be walking through the halls or, you know, whoever it might yeah. be. I don't think that's ever happened. No, I don't think Jimmy Carter. I think he <laughs> no. would get turned. He would he would light on fire <laughs> yeah. if he went through there. It is. It's much more, quote unquote, just a job than it was eight years ago. Right. But it's still an amazing job. Yeah. So you try um, to hold on to that and you, you remember yeah, you know, not to it, get too bitter. Or, no. And it, and it is. Oh, no, you can't. I mean, I mean, look, you're. Doing a job that you're getting to give your opinion and make snarky jokes on TV yeah. for an hour. That's an amazing thing. Have you ever given an opinion on a show and then like two weeks later found out something, you know, you hear uh, new information and obviously intelligent people have fluidity of thought. Mm. And you're like, I completely disagree with TV's Andy Levy two weeks ago. TV's Andy yes. Levy today yes. uh, has an entirely different point of view. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think so. Um, and then do you try to remedy that or you just kind of let it be? No, I try to remedy it. Uh, it Well, it depends because it has to be, uh, you know, if we're doing a, a similar story or something like that, if, if there's an opportunity for me to say, you know, hey, I said this, but now I think this. I'll Is there an it. example of that at all that you can think of? I can't think, think of, of yeah, one. I, I mean, yeah. I... I'm so rarely wrong that the <laughs> idea of trying to... <laughs> um, no, I, I, look, my, my, my feeling is if, you, if your opinions never, ever change, you are probably not very... I don't want... No, it harkens back to exactly what you were saying about the Columbia, you know, uh, liberals locking up the schools right. and things like that. But I also think... I think ideology... And I, the, the, I don't know if it's the older I get or whatever, the more I think this. I think ideology kills IQ points. Mm. And by ideology, I don't mean having a system of beliefs. I, I mean, I mean, 
having a rigid thing mm-hmm. where my side is right and the other side is wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I think that I, I see smart people say dumb things all the time in the service of their ideology or in the service of their political party, in the service of a, a political person, mm-hmm. an individual. Do you think television news is to blame uh, for that? Because no. literally they, people are in a box and they have to have a 45-second uh, sound bite, whatever it is. They're debating somebody. They need to have two individuals from polar opposites on mm. the spectrum. Do you think it cultivates um, and enables people to uh, benefit from a rigid ideology? Because if you're a producer and you're like, we need a conservative yeah. who's a total war hawk, right. and we need a liberal who is a total dove, so they're like, let's call Cindy Sheehan and let's call... Uh, you know, um, John McCain or something like this. Mm. Uh, I don't think TV news is to blame for it. I, th- I think it's part of the whole thing I'm talking about. But come on, a- everyone, I, the internet is is like this too. Yeah, and I'm not. I don't even mean just Twitter or social media. I mean by the internet, I'm at this point talking about journalism. Because, you know, obviously anything, the New York Times is the internet. I can, I read the Times on the internet. So, I, I just, I don't, I, I just, I see people who are smart and I, and I, and I see them write things that I just think, you, you can't believe this. Yeah. Like, you can't possibly believe this. The other thing, nobody, it's very hard to find people who write to persuade anymore. I don't think. I, what do you mean? People who write these days are writing not to persuade people who disagree with them. Mm. They're writing to show to the proverbial preaching to the choir. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And, and I, and I, that, that to me is, I I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's the worst thing going on in journalism today. Now, is that because uh, what we deal with now is if you can get 5% of the population that believes with your ideology in a country, in a, in a world of 6 billion, in a country of 320 million, you've got yourself, I don't even know what the number is, but let's say 3 or 4 million followers, mm. you get this market cornered. You can be a very, very successful person as opposed yeah. to previously when the world was a little bit, um, didn't have quite as much, uh, there weren't as many voices in the world to be to be expressed. People had to be more of a catch-all. I think that's part of it. I I think I think the people that do a lot of the reading, I, I think it's nobody writes to be to persuade, and I also think nobody who nobody reads to be persuaded. Mm. People read the stuff that validates what they believe, and so I think you have that's you know those are that's the market coming together. You've got people who want to read stuff that validates what they believe, and you have people who want to write to show this is what I believe and this is why the people who disagree with me are dumb slash evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I see it all the time now. I, I've started to read articles on subjects that interest me, and I, I, I don't know. There was an article, I think it was in The Atlantic not that long ago, and it had to do with, with gun control. Mm-hmm. And I saw some people tweeting a link to it saying, you know, there's some interesting points in here. And, and so I was like, all right, let me check it out. The first paragraph was basically an anti quote-unquote gun nut screed mm. and i was like well i'm not reading the rest of like yeah i don't you're not i you you have made me not want to read the rest of what you're writing right and i think that's you know uh, journalism now is the online journalism or whatever it's it's so much snark mixed in with with the journalism right. that it makes it hard for someone who doesn't already agree with you to 
to get through to get past the snort. Do you think that Andrew would be happy with the Breitbart brand? I am not going to answer that only because I, I don't understand what happened to that brand. And what do you mean by that? I, do you, it went too far to the right. It's or? not. It's not even a right left thing anymore. It's just. It's to me. It's it's unreadable. Really, I'll just leave it at that. But I'm not going to sit here and say Andrew would have this, Andrew would have that. I can't. Too many people do that, right? And I see it all the time, you know. And I, it's just, I, that's not my place to say what Andrew would have or right, Andrew right, right. wouldn't have. Yeah. Um. But I, I look. It's appealing to someone, and I guess they have their reasons that they're doing what they're doing. But I, I don't read it at all anymore. Mm-hmm. I, it does I, sort of have the feeling of. Uh, we've got a new Michael Jackson album coming out, Michael Jackson's unreleased tapes. And you're like, Michael Jackson didn't release them for a reason. Yeah. Maybe we shouldn't release the Michael Jackson unreleased tapes because when he was yeah. alive, he knew they were done and he kept them in his pocket. Yeah. And I, and I, I yeah, I, I just, I mean, the shilling for Trump is just uh, whatever. I, 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 it's, it's of no hmm. interest to me to, to read it. So, right. Right. Uh, so I don't read it. Biggest, uh, before the show, we were discussing briefly. I don't want to blow this guy's spot. I know we got to get out of here. I don't want to blow this guy's spot up. But Sean Hannity, a lot of people hate him, but he's a nice guy. Nicest guy in the world. Nicest guy in the world. Yeah. Isn't that shocking? I, I, I don't know why it's shocking. People don't like Sean Hannity. But people don't like Sean Hannity because they don't like his politics. But you got to separate politics from from the person and you've been on sean hannity's set you've been on sean hannity's show i just gotta ask you where's he throwing the football whenever he goes to commercial he's Uh, always throwing a little football he must have a whole bucket of footballs no no there's a little there's a miniature black hole oh i see that rotates in in the corner of the studio Mm. and so the footballs go through that into a a, another universe oh i didn't realize that's amazing yeah a lot of uh, i I thought everyone knew that but apparently not yeah 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 fascinating yeah um, oh, my God, dude. This, uh, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I guess, uh, yeah, I suppose we can just wrap it up. Red Eye, where do you see it going? It's going to be huge. <laughs> Hopefully, yeah. Yep. We're, they're going to go all the way to 2 a.m. It's going to be They're bumping them up to huge. 2 a.m. Yeah. It's going to be massive. <laughs> um, find Andy on Twitter. Uh, what is it? It's TV's Andy Levy or no, just Andy just Levy? just at Andy Levy, yeah. Just at Andy Levy. Follow him on Twitter. He's amazing. He's always engaging with celebrities, and I and I <laughs> fave him, but now I heart him now yeah. because Twitter changed. People were so pissed about the heart. I don't get upset about certain things. Care. I'm yeah. like, it's a heart, whatever. Make it a little dick. I, I don't f- care. I feel... Hmm, interesting. Hmm. Um, no, wait. Yeah. No, 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 no. Make it a, a, a beautiful I think we should one go out boob. On, uh, let's go out on Big that. fucking dick. Yeah. No, 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 no. Make it a make it a nipple with a boob. I love boob. All uh, right. Uh, Andy Levy, find him on Twitter. Watch Red Eye every single day at 3 o'clock in the morning on Fox News. And Andy is all over the network. He does Lou Dobbs on a regular basis and uh, a bunch of shows. And, and he's just phenomenal. Thank you so much. Thanks again, man. Um, uh, Mike Coscarelli, how you doing, Mike? I'm doing all right, guys. You're good. Okay, find Mike on Twitter at Mike Coscarelli. How's everything? And, and listen to your podcast, Social Villains. Yes, sir. Check that one out. I'm on Twitter as well, at Ben Kissel. And make sure to check out my other shows on Cave Comedy Radio, uh, A Blinkett's Top Hat, The Roundtable of Gentlemen, and the last podcast on the left. You will love them, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.